Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Today, as I began to do the study for what we're going to talk about, uh, one of the things that came up was the sacrificial system that was in place before Jesus, uh, before Jesus' sacrifice took the place of that. Um, but it was this, uh, this system where you would go before God, but to atone for your sins, you would sacrifice uh, an animal. And that was your way of placing your sin on the animal. And this is just the way the Old Testament had it all set up. And so in Jesus' day, when he's talking about sacrifices, in particular when we're talking about the temple, uh, our common practice was to, to have an animal to sacrifice. And the emphasis of that was, I know it seems kind of cruel and, and morbid in our day, but just to keep that in mind before you get mad at God, remember that he sent his own son to die so that we wouldn't have to do that anymore. Um, but it was, it was an important thing because, as I was studying, have you ever had a relationship where like something has gone off between you, and you're in that awkward stage where you're kind of making small talk with this person, because you can't go any deeper because of that deep rift that has happened between the two of you. Have you ever had that? You experienced that in a relationship and you're, you're making that awkward small talk to avoid talking about this very serious thing that you need, to, you need to get out there for the relationship to continue. And the reality of what the sacrificial system represented was, was that, that we have this rift between us and God. And before we can get to a deeper place, before we can be in his presence, before we can really have a connection with him again, we have to understand the rift that has come between us, this sin that has entered in. And so that's what they would do. They would have this sacrifice to remember before they could continue their relationship with God. They would atone and, and apologize, and they would see this animal and uh, understand the weight and what it costs for, their, for, their, for them to be in the presence of God again. And so uh, today as I was studying that, I, I began to realize that, okay, I think we need to do that today. I think we need to practice what they would do. And so instead of doing communion at the end of this service, I want to do it at the beginning. So hopefully you got one of these cups. If you don't, if you don't have one, you can grab one from Pete. But I want to start by taking these so you guys can open them up. And I want us to remember the sacrifice, what it costs for us to be in the presence of God. We don't have to, fortunately, we don't have to make an animal sacrifice here today. But... That's because of what Jesus' sacrifice did for us. Uh, and so before we, before we dive into a scripture, before we pray and, and come before God, I, I want us to lay at his feet and understand the cost of what it takes for us to be there. Understand that there's a rift in our relationship and it's because of us and the sin that we've allowed to enter in so that we can have a deep relationship with God. So this awkwardness can be dispelled and we can uh, just have that... Co- uh, communion together again. And so uh, that's what we're going to do today. So I want you to think and pray and just imagine that, that you're isolate yourself for a moment and go in the presence of God and think about the relationship that you have with him, the, the sin that has entered in and the sacrifice that has saved it. On Jesus's last night on earth, he broke some bread with his disciples and passed it amongst them and said, this is my body, which I will break for you. Take and eat. And then he passed the cup amongst them and said, this is my blood, which I will shed for you. Take and drink. 
Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for restoring this relationship. Thank you for allowing us to be in your presence, for loving us so much that you died for us. I pray, Lord, now that as we study your word, uh, that you can meet with us in this place, that we can enjoy being in your presence and we can do so guilt-free, not because of anything we've done, not because we've earned it, but because of what you've done. That we can all come right now and set aside all the guilt, all the shame, all the, anything that we might have done or feel at this moment, we can all set it aside just for this moment to be in your presence because we know, we know that you have redeemed us. We know what you've done and we know what it cost. And uh, we may never truly know the pain of that. We thankfully will never know what the weight of our sin really costs, but we understand what you've done and we thank you for it. And we pray, Lord, that as, as we dive into your word, that you meet us here and we can enjoy being in your presence. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So um, I really wanted to talk about this series that we had been going through, uh, The Personhood of Christ. And uh, I typically like to go for a challenge. I don't like to do the easy ones. I wanted to talk about, you know, what's a part of Jesus that's not so easy to talk about, preach about, you know. And so, you know, I, I wanted to talk about angry, angry Jesus. Uh, and that's, that's something that we see in the Gospels is a Jesus that's angry. And in our culture today, that's kind of a taboo thing. You know, you don't, we don't like the angry side of God. We don't like the angry side of who Jesus is. That's not, it's not a good thing. Um, but it's still there, and I think we need to talk about it. And so I wanted to talk about that. And then my idea behind that was, okay, what is Jesus angry about? And how does our anger line up with that? Are we allowed to be angry? Are we allowed to be the angry about the things he's angry about? How do we react to that? And that's the kind of direction I wanted to go. However, the Holy Spirit took it a different way. So if this sermon uh, isn't very good, blame the Holy Spirit. All right? <laughs> so this is not the direction I was going to go. No, honestly, I'm, I'm just trying to be faithful. Uh, and as I studied, it just... Went a different direction. So uh, we are still going to talk about angry Jesus, uh, but we're going to see about how that impacts our relationship with God and uh, what that means for our personal relationship with him. Uh, We're going to be looking at John chapter 2, and uh, you'll probably know this story. Many of you have heard it before, I'm sure. It's it's a story that appears in all four Gospels. Uh, And all four Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have this this particular story uh, on Palm Sunday, right after uh, Jesus comes in riding on a a donkey, and everyone in in Jerusalem is shouting, Hosanna, laying their coats down. And so it's this epic, triumphal entry that Jesus has, and... um, and then this, this story happens. John, however, the one, this story we're going to look at is John's account. And he has it right in the beginning, like right off in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, but that's because John is uh, a very symbolic poetic writer. And he has, he's making things tie together uh, that I think other people don't think about. He, he just thinks about things differently, which is why I appreciate John. But also, John has a slightly different perspective on this story. All the other stories will deviate from what John says. They, they say something else, and they all say the same thing. Uh, but John says this story a little bit differently, and I think the way he says it 
might have something, a different implication for us. So let's read John chapter 2. We're going to go from verse 13 to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You guys heard this story before? Yeah, Jesus uh, makes a whip. Yeah, I think sometimes we, we either hear this and we, we either gloss over it. Like you hear someone just read this story and it's kind of presented in a mundane way where you're reading through the Bible and you're just like, oh, yeah, Jesus made a whip. Like, no, Jesus made a whip. <laughs> what is that about? This is the only account that you see that not only is Jesus angry, he gets angry in other parts, but he's also somewhat violent here. This is a, a violent act that's happening. But before we go too far into thinking, oh, Jesus is, is really mean. And I have a picture. You can see uh, mean Caucasian Jesus coming at people with a whip. Uh, so anyway, this is uh, the, the image we get. And we, we start to think, oh, he braided like some leather. And he, you know, he's breaking the sound barrier with this whip. You know, and, and he's hurting the people out of there. But I don't think what he was with the cords, this isn't something that it was probably the type of material that they would make baskets with. So this isn't like a, a whip that he's like intentionally trying to hurt people. This is not like, oh, Jesus is getting angry and he wants to hurt people. He's probably using it just to get the animals out, honestly. It was mostly just to herd people out of the place because he's angry about their presence there. Uh, and so what we have to think about is why, why is Jesus angry? What, what is Jesus mad about in this, in this thing that's happening here? He's coming to the temple. Remember, this is, according to the Synoptic Gospels, this is right after everyone has shouted, Hosanna, Lord, save us. He should be in a good mood. This is a great day. Of course, it's the week leading up to his death. So, you know, maybe he has that hanging over his head. But he comes into the temple. He sees the money changers, all the oxen and all the stuff as they were selling for the sacrifices to be made. And he's angry. He's mad. And he's telling them all to get out. And he wants them to, to take that seriously. So why is he mad? Well, the other Gospels, if you read through them, in the way you've probably heard this presented before, uh, one of the things Jesus says as he's saying that, he's saying, you've turned my, the, my father's house, a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. And that's the way the other, trans, the other Gospels present it, that, uh, that they're robbing people of something. And so... The way most people think this is what, what Jesus is mad about is that he, he, these people are being greedy. They're taking advantage of people. They're exchanging money at unfair rates. They're charging people over and above for the animals to be sacrificed. They're you know, making it difficult for people to come before worship, uh, to come and worship and offer their sacrifices because they have to have the right animal or, or they have to pay the right price. And it starts to become this greedy thing that they have done that hinders people from worshiping God. And so maybe that's what Jesus is mad about. And I think if you read the other Gospels, that's the impression you would get. But reading John's Gospel, it's a slightly different story. He's saying that uh, you're making my father's house a house of trade, and the Greek word is more like a market. You're turning my father's house into a market. Is there anything wrong about a market? Did Jesus go to every other market, turn over tables, and whip people? 
not that we know of, you know, like there's, there's no other story. So there's no problem with a market. There's no issue with markets. What's the problem then? It's not what they're doing. It's not even why they're doing it. It's where they're doing it. That's what John believes is the problem. It doesn't matter that they're changing money. No, that can be a helpful thing. Maybe they're being greedy. Sure. Matthew, the tax collector, probably understood that and probably thought that that's what Jesus was mad about because he, in his past life, was greedy. And you know how you kind of project things on people. So maybe that's why Matthew wrote that version. And maybe Mark and Luke, as they were studying and learning, they also kind of got the same impression. But John sees it a little differently. He's had a lot of time to reflect and think about this. And maybe he, he comes with a different impression that Jesus isn't mad about what they're doing or even why they're doing it, but the fact that they're doing it in the temple. That they could have done this outside and it would have been fine. They could have been offering these sacrifices and, and allowing people to buy these animals and exchanging money because people are coming over. This is Passover. People are coming over all over the place from different regions, so they have to exchange money. They might not have brought a sacrifice because it's a long journey, so they need to buy an animal right there. So this is actually could be a good thing for people, but it's being done in the wrong place. And so what, which one of these is the truth? I think when we read the Bible, we always try to pull at one of those things. Or we're like, okay, one of these is the true thing. But because I think all four Gospels give us a, a unique perspective, a more holistic picture of who the person of Jesus is, I think we can look at all of these stories and, and think... Okay, maybe all of these things make Jesus angry. Maybe Jesus is angry about greed. Maybe Jesus is angry about uh, when relationship with him is being hindered, when it's being made impersonal or it's being replaced. That's the type of thing that I think makes Jesus angry. Uh, And I think that there's a common thread between all of those. All of those different reasons that he was mad about them selling animals and exchanging money, why he wanted them out of the temple. It's because they're, they're taking something that's supposed to be, like we did this morning, a, a reflective event where they're sacrificing something and, and they're hindering it by distracting people. They're hindering it by maybe causing some people to not be able to afford it. They're causing it to be made impersonal because when someone comes to the temple and they need to exchange this and it's supposed to be this moment of reflection and prayer but all they have to do is pay some money and someone will sacrifice it for them maybe they're not having that connecting moment that that understanding of the atonement that's being made that they the what it costs for them to go before the presence of God maybe that's being removed altogether and and they're not having that connection with God again or maybe it's being replaced altogether with greed that we're worshiping a different God. All of these things I can see Jesus being angry about. And maybe it's one of those things that we're just going to have to ask him when we get there. But I think, I think we could take all of them and learn from them. Um, now, this, this is the part where like, I was like, okay, now what do we be angry about? Um, but that's where the Holy Spirit kind of redirected me. And, and I want to think about like, what, what does this mean for us? Um, what, what do we do with Jesus's anger and, and what does it mean for us as we try to have a deeper and closer relationship with him? So b- before we move on, uh, I just wanted to say, like, I, I think anger is not a sin. You know, obviously Jesus has no sin and he's angry. Uh, however, I think Jesus was able to balance like this righteous, holy anger 
with perfect, undeniable love. So when you mastered both of those things, you can be angry, okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure some of you are real close. Uh, but until then, until we've got those things down, until we've understood those things really well, I think it's probably better that we not let anger control our lives and we learn to let things go, to forgive and love um, and not let anger manifest itself too much in our lives. So let's move on into what the Holy Spirit wanted to say. John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. So this is the rest of this story. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So... I love this. First of all, it took us like eight, almost a year to get this building all built out. And we were anxious. Like we wanted this. We were chomping at the bit to get in here. And I remember, like you guys might remember, we had a sign that said we were going to be in here like way sooner than we were. Because we were really excited. And it took a really long time. And everything, you know, how things go. Like you just, construction projects don't go as fast as you think they, they're going to go. And so... We, we sit there thinking about the, the anxiousness that we had to go in there. So how long did it take the temple to get built? 46 years. Imagine waiting for that to happen. Like, oh, when do we get to go in? Like, I'm sure you could kind of see, like, oh, it's not even close. You know, but there's still this, like, oh, man. Like, before we just gloss over the fact that it took 46 years. Like, it took 46 years. That's some patience, and that's a long construction project. Um. So Jesus has just whipped people and caused them to leave the temple, and he's angry, and he's doing this on what authority? Now, it's interesting in this account, as John's writing this, the Pharisees don't, they don't question Jesus and whether or not he has authority. No, the authority actually is evident to them. They're not asking, like, where's your authority at? No, they, they can tell he has authority. They're asking, where does it come from? What's a sign that you can give us that you have the right to do this? What's, the, what's a sign that you can show us that this, is, this authority that you're displaying is from God? And so they're asking us, give us a sign to, to let us know what, if, if you're really God, that, we can, that you're allowed to do this. And Jesus says in his typical way of saying something slight, like giving an answer, but not really giving an answer. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And I love John's account, because John over and over again is, is always throwing in these little asides, like, oh, but we figured it out. It took us probably like 10 years, but we figured out what he meant by that. And so John's writing this way later, he's like, oh, he's talking about the temple of his body. And that, I love this response, because... Um, what the, the Pharisees are really asking is, how can you do this? This is God's house. This is God's place. And, and Jesus, rather than saying, no, 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 this is my house, which he could say, 
he, he treats it like his house. You know, when it, if you ever invite me over, I'm not going to rearrange the furniture in your house. That would be a very weird thing. If you have a friend that comes over and starts rearranging, like, you know, you probably should angle your TV the other way or move your couch over there. You got a weird friend. You know, like that, that would be a, a strange thing to do. But Jesus is coming in. This is his house. He can rearrange furniture however he wants. And he knows that this is not where things belong in this place. And so he's, he's telling them to get out. And he has the authority to do that. But he, that's not what he says here. He doesn't say that I, I own this temple. This is my house. He says, I am the temple. Own it. I, I am it. I am the temple. And uh, there's this understanding because the temple, what it represents, what it means what, to these people, what they think of the temple is, is the place where you can be in the presence of God. And that's, that's why Jesus is the temple, because he is God. If you want to go be in the presence of God, yeah, you could go to the temple, but you could also go right to the feet of Jesus. And that's where the presence of God is. And so he understands, and, and, he's, and so does John and the disciples later, that he is the temple, because he is where you can be in the presence of God. But that analogy doesn't stop with Jesus. Uh, as as the New Testament go on, there's three different times where um, we're presented with the idea that because we who believe in Jesus have the Holy Spirit within us, and the the Holy Spirit is also God, then we are also temples, and we can be a place where people can come and be in the presence of God. And so, I wanted to read one of those First Corinthians six uh, nineteen through twenty says this. Oh, I have to go there. I didn't write it down. There we go. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were brought with a price, so you glorify God in your body. So Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church, and he's particularly telling them to avoid sexual immorality, to not defame the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is your body. And, and that's, I think, an important message for all of us today, that kind of like the temple was being defamed and something was, was happening that shouldn't have been happening in Jesus' day and why he was angry. He's telling the First Corinthian church that, well, no, the Corinthian church in First Corinthians, he is telling them that you are just like those people, you're mistreating the temple of God. That this is a place of where... The Holy Spirit resides and people can be in the presence of God and, and you are mistreating it and you are abusing it and using it for the wrong purposes. That if you are a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit within you, then don't defame that temple, which is your body. Um, and this, this might be like a crazy analogy. You might think of this like crazy. Like, yeah, we can understand how Jesus is a temple because he is God. So people can be in the presence of God. So that makes sense, but isn't it kind of crazy to say that I'm a temple? Wouldn't that be kind of insane to say that you should treat me with the same reverence, or I should treat myself with the same reverence as the temple? But this is not just mentioned here, it's mentioned at three different times, that that because of the Holy Spirit, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are a place where people can experience God. People can be in the presence of God. And I think... With that, instead of just thinking about how crazy that is, although it is, I think we understand the, the incredible responsibility that comes with that. And we, 
We represent God. We reflect God. People are supposed to have relationship with us and be able to be in the presence of God. That's, that's what people are supposed to be experiencing when they have a relationship with us. When you come talk to me, you're supposed to be able to feel God's presence. That's a huge, immense responsibility. But because of the Holy Spirit, we can have that. And we can do that. Um, but one thing I want to point out about this whole thing, about Jesus' cleansing of the temple, is that he doesn't really explain why. Notice that? Like, they ask him, and he kind of alludes to it. That's why we kind of have this debate of, like, why is he really angry? Why, why is he driving these people out? We don't really have a clear understanding of the, the, the why of it all. But I think uh, as we consider the fact that we are also temples, we need to understand not only the responsibility of that, but the ramifications, too. That we have asked Jesus to be Lord of our lives, that we who come before Jesus and have asked him to be our savior, to come into our lives and, and to redeem us and restore that relationship, we who to, took communion and understand the sacrifice that he's made, we can come before Jesus and we can say, okay, yeah, I like the merciful, forgiving, loving Jesus. That's great. But just like all of us, there's more aspects of who he is that you're having to invite in too. We also invite in angry Jesus. That's heaven bent on having a deeper relationship with us and removing the things from our lives that are hindering that. Sometimes I think we forget about that when we cry out Hosanna like they did the day, that same day. They were crying out Hosanna, which means Lord save us. And then they're surprised by him coming inside the temple and telling people to get out. Sometimes I think that's something that happens for us too. That we, we get really excited about the loving, forgiving Jesus. And he's still there, and that's still a, a massive part of who he is. But there's also this angry side that is jealous when we start to walk away from him. That is jealous because he loves us and knows we are, that he is what's best for us. And he doesn't want anything to be hindering that relationship. And he also understands that because we believe in him, we are also supposed to be representing him. And we're supposed to be a place where people can be in the presence of God. And so not only are we hindering our own relationship, but we're also potentially hindering the relationships of the people around us. And so angry Jesus comes in and, and he reorders our lives. He rearranges the furnitures of our hearts. It's a weird analogy, but that's kind of what he's doing all the time. So I wanted to take a look at the order of the events and, and kind of explain how this works. Um, first, Jesus saves. Number one, Jesus saves. He comes in, we cry out, and this is all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, all of us who have come before Jesus and said, okay, I believe in you, please redeem me, please save me, and, and you would acknowledge yourself as a Christian. You've cried out for Jesus to save you, and Jesus has saved you. That's, that's the, the essential step. Just like they did that day, Lord save us, Hosanna, they were acknowledging who Jesus is and his power to save. However, we're also, the second thing is, Jesus is Lord, and we've invited in someone not to just be a guest in our life, but to be Lord of our life. And that means he has every authority and every right to remove things that are hindering our relationship with him, just like he did at the temple that day. He walked in, and, and it, was, it wasn't about their greed necessarily. It might have been, but it wasn't just about that for sure. 
They were turning something that was supposed to be this reflective event into some kind of like admissions ticket. You're just paying a price and walking in and being like, okay, I'm in the presence of God. No, you're supposed to feel the weight, the cost of the sin. And sometimes I think we do that. That's why I wanted to do this before we did anything first. It was because we, we walk in sometimes and think it's so easy just to be in the presence of God. Yes, it is because of what Jesus has done. Let's not forget that. And so he rearranges and tells them to get out because this does not belong there. And we as Christians, we, we experience this too. If you've walked with Jesus any amount of time, I'm sure he's had to do some rearranging in your life and it's been painful. It's hard. I know what's happened to me in my life. There are relationships that I would have liked to see continue, but they couldn't because they were hindering my relationship with him. There are things that have seeped in and, and here's the thing. Here's what ends up happening. And, and if you're anything like me, you understand this because you'll question all the time, why? Why are you doing this, Jesus? Why are you casting out? We might even ask like the Pharisees did, give me a sign that this is really from you. What authority, Jesus, do you have to remove this person from my life? What authority do you have to remove me from this situation or take this place or whatever you're doing in my life and in my heart? What, what authority you're doing? Like, give me a sign. I think Jesus' answer is going to be the same as it was that day. There is a sign. I'm, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again. That, that's your sign. You can remember that. You can reflect on that and know that we don't trust God because why he's doing things. We don't trust the Holy Spirit as it's sanctifying us because of why it's doing it. We don't trust in Jesus because of why he did things. We trust in him because of who he is. We don't get through those moments where things are being removed from our lives and, and our hearts and our, our souls are being rearranged. We don't get through that by remembering why. We get through that by remembering who. And that's what we're supposed to reflect on. That's what, who, we're, who we're supposed to stay focused on is, is who Jesus is. What he has done for us. The sacrifice that he has made and that reflects who he is, how much he loves us. That we have a creator God that loves us so much to send his son down to die for us. That we have a Holy Spirit within us that is patient enough to walk us through all this stuff. In my life, how this has worked out many times is just this order. I, I cry out to God and then I'm kind of taken aback as I realize that, oh, shoot, I didn't invite a guest into my life to kind of witness and walk alongside me as a, you know, yeah, he's a friend and yeah, he helps me and encourages me. But more than that, he isn't the Lord of my life and he decides. And I'm grateful for that. I'm glad because I can now thankfully look back on my life in many moments where I questioned God why, and I even fought back against him and I kept going, no, 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 this is not right. This is not what I want. And he kept pushing back and he kept telling me, no, no, no. I got a plan, trust in me, believe in me. And now here on this stage today, I can look back at those times and be like, oh, okay. Fortunately, I got to see a little bit of why he did what he did. It took a long time and it took a lot of him helping me see through his eyes. But I can confidently look back and be like, okay, I understand God. That relationship actually wasn't leading to a better relationship with you. It was actually hurting it. And 
those habits actually weren't good things for me. They were distracting me from the purpose that you have created me for. And those things that were even good things that I was interested in wouldn't let me fulfill the the purpose that you created me for. And so you had to rearrange things. You had to do some painful things that have caused me to struggle, to question why, and yet here I am trusting in you, not because of why you did those things, but because of who you are. So that's what I, I have, well, no, that's what the Holy Spirit led me to say today. And when you invite Jesus into your life, you invite not just all of, not the graceful, loving, yeah, you invite that part too. But you also invite Lord Jesus who gets angry sometimes. And he has every right and every authority to be angry because he has your best interests at heart and he wants to glorify himself through you. He wants you to be a place where people can be in the presence of him. And so he's going to rearrange some stuff. And when you go to those moments and you're questioning why, what's this struggle, where is it leading to, just trust, not in the why, but in the who. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I pray, Lord, that as I've been sharing these things, that uh, Holy Spirit, you can just speak to all of us individually. I know that this is a convicting thing for me. Uh, I love when I can preach things I have down, but that's never happened. Um, But I'm still grateful for the continued work that you do in my life and the fact that even though I don't have to know it, to trust in you you still show me why sometimes why you do things and I, I appreciate that but God that's not what I hang my my faith on that's not why I trust in you and believe in you I trust in you and believe in you because of who you are I pray that we as a congregation don't forget that that we haven't just invited you into our lives because you're graceful and merciful and loving although you are we've invited you into our lives to be Lord of them And we invite you into this church to be Lord of this church. We understand that that's not just something that's easy, that sometimes you're going to have to rearrange the way that we do things. But we invite you to do those things because we want you to be king here. And we want you to be glorified. And we want this place and, and all of us individually to be a place where your presence is felt and experienced. So keep working on us, Holy Spirit. Keep guiding us. Keep leading us. And keep moving things around as you have to. We trust in you and we believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.